Just in case you haven't been with us maybe the last few weeks, let me take just a quick minute and reestablish the scene where we are here at the end of John 19. Jesus has died on a cross, positioned atop Golgotha, Mount Calvary. He died at approximately 3 p.m. on Thursday afternoon. Following his declaration, it is finished, tetelestai, paid in full, before then ultimately succumbing to death, yielding himself, his spirit to his father. This darkness that had covered the earth since about noon was lifted and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The holy of the holies, the throne room of God, opened for all. Since Thursday at sunset would begin a special Friday Sabbath associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would then be followed by a second Sabbath, that being the weekly normal Saturday, it was paramount that the crucifixion process wrap up with enough time to dispose of the bodies. And we don't know the specific time of death. But when the executioners come to break Jesus' legs, to expedite the process, it was clear that he was already deceased. In order to confirm this was the case, John 19, verses 33 and 34 recount how these professional soldiers, when they had come to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. There is no doubt Jesus was indeed dead before his body was removed from the cross. In fact, upon Joseph of Arimathea's request, that Pilate grant him permission to give Jesus a proper burial, Mark 15 records the following. Records how Pilate marveled when he heard that Jesus was already dead, so he summoned the centurion and asked him if he had been dead for some time. It was only when he had found out from the centurion that Jesus was deceased that Pilate granted or gifted the body to Joseph. Now the reason that this detail is so important is that it directly challenges what is known as the swoon theory. In an attempt to discredit the resurrection narrative, proponents of this theory, this view, believe that Jesus, sure, he was crucified, but, they'll argue, he only appeared to be dead when he was removed from the cross and laid in the tomb. And at some point over these three days, the coolness of the sarcophagus revived Jesus' physical body. He regained consciousness and then proceeded to escape and fabricate a story of resurrection. Now, you might find this idea, this theory, to be silly on the surface. The criticism, however, is to be taken seriously, as you'll find the swoon theory presented most notably in the Quran, meaning the theories believed by over a billion people living right now. Truth, many Muslims contend that following what amounts to a hoax, Jesus ultimately fled Judea, and he lived out his life in India. Now, as you contend with such a position, the first counter-argument is that the Scriptures present more than enough evidence that Jesus died on the cross. First, we have the eyewitness testimony of John himself, our author, who personally saw not just Jesus breathe his last, but saw the autopsy, saw the spear, saw his death confirmed. 
In John 19, verse 35, we read John writing that he was seen, speaking of himself, has testified. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth so that you may believe. Secondly, as you contend with such a theory, you also have this post-mortem autopsy being conducted by Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross, revealing that Jesus had died, but specifically had died from heart failure, catastrophic heart failure. The mixture of blood and water tell us this. Thirdly, we had then the official testimony of the centurion, reporting back to Pilate's inquiry that Jesus was indeed dead. Finally, you then have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who personally prepared Jesus' body for burial. It's highly unlikely that they would have failed to have detected even the slightest of pulses. Aside from the fact that such a theory doesn't fit within the historical record, the record provided to us in, in God's Word, it also simply doesn't fit our historical understanding of a Roman crucifixion. It can't be overstated enough how these four Roman soldiers charged with carrying out a crucifixion. This was their job. These men were professionals. All four men were experts at killing. And this, by the way, wasn't their first rodeo. wasn't their first crucifixion. The truth is, these men could not afford to make a mistake. You see, according to Roman law, if a prisoner entrusted to your care did escape, whatever penalty they were supposed to be serving, you would then have to carry forth. Meaning, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, they made a mistake, all four of these men would be executed. They wouldn't make such a blunder, such an error. We'll actually see this whole idea come into play with a cover-up that ends up being hatched by the religious leaders. What's interesting about the theory is the inconvenient fact that there are zero records, and the Romans were notorious for keeping records. There are no records ever of anyone at any time surviving a Roman crucifixion, yet alone a crucifixion that happened to follow such a brutal scourging. Honestly, such a theory doesn't make logical sense. Consider it this way, hypothetically. Let's say Jesus did somehow survive the scourging and then the crucifixion, which, by the way, included being stabbed with a spear and was somehow, some way, revived, resuscitated while lying in this cold, damp, dark tomb. First, explain how a man in such a physical condition would be able to roll the stone back. A stone that weighed approximately two tons. It seems far-fetched. Secondly, if Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion, I also think it's safe for us to assume that his battered body, his bloody body, would have hardly been motivation for the disciples to now start a new religion based solely upon his resurrection. To this particular point, one apologist, he writes this. He says, a person in that kind of pathetic condition would never have inspired his disciples to go out and proclaim that he's the Lord of life and triumph over the grave. The swoon theory, it exists, but it's unfounded. Jesus, when he was removed from the cross, was indeed dead. So, with that out of the way, 
let's get back to the flow of things. Customarily, the bodies of those who had been crucified would be disposed of with zero care or any decorum or consideration. I mean, they were guilty criminals. Rome didn't care. Most of the time, it was outlawed even for the family to dispose of the body properly. The body would be taken from the cross, simply discarded in a local dump. But this wouldn't be the case with Jesus. An exception was made. Again, it's difficult to say with certainty what time Joseph was granted the body from Pilate, other than the fact that we know his window to remove Jesus from the cross and then bury him in his family tomb was rapidly closing. He didn't have a lot of time to get the body and then to properly bury it. Knowing that, John tells us that Joseph needed help, logically. So he recruits his friend Nicodemus. We read about this in the last few verses of chapter 19. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to harmonize for you the other three accounts of what occurs in these few hours with John 19, passage we've already read. The details on your own, if you'd like to read through them, you'll find recorded uh, in Mark 15, Matthew 27, as well as Luke 23. So the following occurs after Pilate gave Joseph permission to properly bury the body of Jesus. First, Joseph and Nicodemus would come to Golgotha from Pilate. First thing they would do is they'd have to remove Jesus, his body, from, from the cross itself. On a side note, I do think it's really sad. If you've been working your way through the Gospel of John, through any of the Gospels, really, I think it's sad that not one of Jesus' closest followers played any role at all in this process. His public disciples are nowhere to be found while we're told these two secret disciples decide to go public. And what must that experience have been like for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? We don't talk about this enough, I don't think. And for right reason, you're reading through the narrative and, and you get to the crucifixion. Jesus dying on the cross, it's a monumental moment. And then almost immediately you switch over to the resurrection, another monumental event. The moment in between, what happens? It demands our consideration. These two men, two wealthy men, Members of the Sanhedrin, secret disciples, they get permission, but they've got to then go through a process. The first part would be the actual removing of Jesus' body from the cross. And, and to do this, more than likely these men would have taken a long piece of some type of fabric. Could have, in all likelihood, been one of their tunics. What they would have done is they would have placed it Again, Jesus is on the cross. They would have placed it across his chest and then back up under his armpits. The ends of the fabric would go over the horizontal beam to the back of the cross. Now, from a solid position, holding the fabric in place, each end, Nicodemus likely, is able to hold Jesus' body into place while Joseph has to do something that's horrifying. You're going to have to remove the nails to get Jesus down from the cross. 
Again, if you had just gone through the process of removing one nail, his whole body would have fallen over. Very difficult to remove the next one. If you had just taken the nail out of the feet, would have probably ripped his hands. This process, Nicodemus with this piece of fabric holding, holding him in place. So that he could start with the, the right hand and then move to the left hand. Removing these long nails, prying them from the timber, gently getting them through the flesh. You know, by the way, on a side note, this is why your, your traditional depictions of the cross without Jesus, without the body, has this piece of fabric. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wondered where does the fabric come from? This is why. This is where it comes from, from a historical depiction. This is how you would take a body off of the cross. Now, once Joseph, and again, kind of just try to picture it. We don't do this often. You're Joseph. You finally get that last nail. You free Jesus. Nicodemus is holding the weight from behind. Good vantage point. And, and he's got to now slowly start to lower the body. And, and you're Joseph in front. And as I play this out, I, I imagine that it's Joseph who initially kind of grabs the body and shoulders the weight until Nicodemus is able to, to get his way around. And then they both help transfer Jesus onto some type of a stretcher. Something to make it easier to carry the body. As you can imagine, at the end of just this first process, both Joseph, no doubt, and likely Nicodemus, they are covered in Jesus' blood. I mean, they're already a bloody mess. Now, John tells us that in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. Now, we know this tomb is owned by Joseph of Arimathea. The gospel records also tell us that the tomb had been hewn out of a rock, making it very expensive, and was brand new. All the gospel writers make it clear that no one had ever been laid in the tomb. So after removing Jesus' body from the cross, it's likely, the way it's all framed, a short walk. Short walk to the tomb, the garden and Golgotha in the same location. And once there, Joseph and Nicodemus were told, begin the process the preparation process of the body, we're told specifically as the custom of the Jews is to bury, which tells us a lot. For example, unlike the Egyptians, so the Egyptians had their process, right, for a dead body. They would embalm a body. They would drain the blood, drain the fluids, replace the internal organs with spices. The body would be tightly wrapped so that mummification would occur with time. The Hebrews, while different, had their own process for handling the dead. A Jewish sarcophagus, or tomb, as it's translated from the Greek into English, the sarcophagus was designed to allow the body to lay in state and decompose naturally. Then after a period of time, once it was concluded decomposition had completed, the tomb would actually be opened back up. They would go in and collect the bones of the deceased, placing them into a box known as an ossuary. That box that now has your bones would be placed on a side shelf where you would hang out forever with the rest of your family. It was a family tomb, multiple generations of family members and the same sarcophagus. This particular custom, the Jewish custom, it would begin... So you're Joseph, you're Nicodemus, you've gotten the body off the cross, onto the stretcher, you've gotten it to the tomb. First process of 
the custom is to clean the body. You have to clean the body, thoroughly washing it. Again, just placing yourself there. I mean, where do you begin? Where do you start? I imagine that they probably would have first removed the crown of thorns that had been pressed, by the way, into his scalp. Aside from that, they would probably have rolled Jesus to the side and then, and then gone through the, the painstaking process of just getting rid of the splinters that had gotten wedged into his, his back and the tissue as he pushed himself up and down the timber just to breathe. Once they had removed the debris, whatever was left of the thorns, they would start the painful process of cleaning. No doubt they would have tenderly washed the blood from his hair, the hair that remained, as well as the spit caked onto his face. They would have cleaned out the wounds that had been left in in from the nails that had been driven through his hands and feet. At some point, Joe and Nick roll the body to the side. They do what they can to wash this dried, coagulated blood that had caked to his back, a back that had been left in tatters from the scourging occurring earlier that morning. Finally, as they just gingerly cleaned the remainder of his body, they take great care to tend to that large, gaping laceration in his side left from the blunt entry of the Roman spear. Sure, there was a custom for how the Jews were to bury their dead. But I think it's safe to say that this process had never been attempted on a body that had been scourged and crucified by Romans. Nicodemus, Joseph, they do their best. But, I mean, the, the pure extent of the mutilation of his skin and tissue makes it virtually impossible to completely, entirely clean his body. Following the washing, they've done their best. They would then place Jesus' body on a long piece of linen cloth on a platform inside of the tomb. At this point, strips of linen, we're told in the gospel narratives, would be used specifically to tie his ankles and his knees together. His arms would be fastened across his chest. His jaw would also be firmly secured. The hundred pounds of this costly mixture of myrrh and aloes, we read in John 19, that Nicodemus had brought with him, would then be packed on top of and around Jesus' body to just tamper the the coming decomposition, the smell that would be associated. The cloth then, once the spices are packed on his body, the cloth he had been laid on would then be folded back over the body to hold everything into place. He's not mummified. A shroud then would be placed across his eyes, his nose, his mouth. Now, I doubt that the process was rushed. But again, they had a small window of time. You had this coming Sabbath. So Joseph and Nicodemus, according to the gospel narratives, they don't appear that they were able to complete all the processes. So to ensure that wild animals or thieves couldn't access the body, we're told that they roll a large stone against the door of the tomb. 
according to Mark 15 as well as Luke 23, Mary Magdalene and Mary Jesus' mother had actually followed after Joseph and Nicodemus in order to, quote, observe where the tomb was laid, where the tomb where he was laid was. In fact, the, the narrative tells us that the ladies, once seeing where the tomb was, observing the body being laid there, they leave, they return home to prepare additional spices, fragrant oils for the body. Finish the process. The plan is to come back after Friday, after Saturday, Sunday morning, to finish things. Now, the reason that so much detail, you didn't realize all that detail was included in this narrative, but the reason for the details provided by all four gospel authors about Jesus' burial, well, it's to make it crystal clear to any reader that Jesus was truly dead. Like aside from that, the, the writers go to painstaking efforts to also ensure the location of the tomb was not in any type of question. The historical record is abundantly clear. The tomb, well, we know it was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. There was a record for this. Not only that, both he and Nicodemus personally placed Jesus' body there. That fact is further substantiated by two additional eyewitnesses, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' mother. Beyond all of that, in Matthew 27, verses 62 and 66, this is what we read. We read, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation. Now, now that makes it seem like this is a whole 24 hours later. Don't forget the Jewish day begins at 6 p.m. The next day is literally hours after his body has been laid there. Immediately, this is still Thursday evening. We're told, though, that the chief priests, the Pharisees, they go to Pilate. They say, sir, we remember while he was still alive how he how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. You already have guards in the original. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Not only does this passage confirm that the chief priests, Pharisees, and Pilate also know where the tomb's located. The tomb is secured in two specific ways, according to Matthew. First, the stone covering the entrance was sealed. That's an official term, by the way. And it was sealed with probably some type of a wax liquid in order to deter any attempt to enter the tomb because you would know the tomb had been entered. It would break the seal and thus the evidence would be presented. So not only is the tomb sealed, but then there's also a guard. And again, in the Greek, this word guard, it's an official term. Likely 16 Roman soldiers set in front of the tomb, charged with specific orders to keep anyone from stealing the body of Jesus. Sadly, there are skeptics who argue that the notion of resurrection occurred simply because the women, oh, those women just happened to go to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning. If you read criticisms, this is a theory. The problem with that position is that it fundamentally lacks any biblical evidence and is frankly stupid. I mean, honestly, if this had been the case, the enemies of Christianity would be very easy to end the movement. You went to the wrong tomb. Here's the body. Always remember, if you ever encounter any of these type of criticisms, always remember there is one historical reality no one will dispute. 
the body of Jesus went missing. It is a universally accepted principle. Not a single soul who was alive when these things happened ever debated the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Nor was there zero mystery as to the specific tomb in which he was buried. The other reality is that on the third day, the body's gone. Those three things are not in dispute by anyone present. Even the most stringent critics of Jesus, his enemies. William Lane Craig, he, he wrote the following. He says, if the tomb were in, weren't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on the belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where this man had been publicly executed and buried. It's logical. In fact, while the detractors of Christianity have always had great incentive, to this day, the body of Jesus has never been discovered. Now, the reason the gospel authors include all of these details is to highlight the lunacy of the spin that either the women somehow went to the wrong garden tomb or the lunacy that Jesus' body went missing because the disciples had somehow stolen it. In actuality, the biblical record tells us this particular bit of fake news began almost immediately following the resurrection itself. Let me read for you a section of Matthew 28, verses 2 through 15. Matthew records that, Behold, there was a great earthquake. Angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. Then you jump down to verse 11. Behold, then, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this happens to come to the governor's ears, which, by the way, that would be a capital, capital offense, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying, Matthew tells us, is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The notion that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and created an elaborate hoax of resurrection to start a new religion is as silly today as it was when it was originally presented. For starters, what's their motivation? Like, you gotta have a motive. Like, what motive would the disciples have to even attempt such a thing? Consider, by the way, that just 12 hours earlier, almost every single one of them had abandoned Jesus when he was arrested. And then when he hung on the cross, only John and a group of women demonstrated a willingness to even be publicly identified with him. By sunset, Judas has killed himself. Peter is somewhere crying in a puddle of his own tears over his behavior earlier in the morning. Who knows where the rest of them are? Like how telling it is that not one of these men showed a concern that Jesus' body would receive a proper burial. Like if not for the actions of the two secret disciples, Joe and Nick, it's unlikely Jesus' body, it's likely Jesus' body would have just been ripped from the cross, discarded in the trash. 
Like from the perspective of these disciples, understand, their world over a period of about 24 hours had come crashing down upon them. They had, a few years before, forsaken all to follow Jesus. But this was not the destination any of them had ever imagined. These men were hopeless. They were lost. Like what reason would they have to steal Jesus' body? Jesus was dead. And the implications for them far-reaching, the revolution's over. It's likely all these men cared about was getting out of town before they would get arrested, but they couldn't do so until the Sabbath days were over. You know, more often than not, deceptions are conceived for some type of selfish motive or gain. And yet these men's belief in the resurrection of Jesus would only cause them to be hated, persecuted, excommunicated from Jewish culture and society, would cause these men to be imprisoned, exiled, beheaded, tortured, sawn in half, skinned alive, crucified, the list goes on. While true, that people certainly die for false beliefs all the time. They at least think they're dying for the truth. You see, you don't need a degree in human psychology to know that people don't die for a cause they know to be false. If these men had stolen the body of Jesus to create a hoax, it's only logical that one of them would have broken and confessed under pressure. But in contrast to this, J.P. Moreland, he writes this. He says, The apostles were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. They were in a unique position not just to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know for sure. And when you've got 11 credible people with no ulterior motives with nothing to gain and a lot to lose, who all agree they observe something with their own eyes, now you've got some difficult explaining to get that away. I agree. You know, aside from lacking any type of underlying motive, the other truth, this isn't talked about a lot, but there's really no way the disciples could have stolen the body, even if they wanted to. You remember Peter's great swordsman skills the night Jesus was arrested? He attacks a servant boy, Malchus, and can't even hit him in the head. He clips off his ear. They're fishermen, tax collectors. They're not trained soldiers. Like Jesus has been placed in a sealed tomb with a 24-hour detail of Roman guards whose task is to keep anything like that shenanigans from happening. It takes more faith to believe that a group of 10 untrained disciples overpowering 16 Roman soldiers. Like, that belief takes more faith than Jesus rising from the dead, from my perspective. To do so would have been a suicide mission. 10 down, the 16 just laughing. You know, some say, as described in Matthew, that the disciples were able to steal the body Because the guards fell asleep. First, if you were a Roman soldier who fell asleep on duty, you'd be put to death right there. That didn't happen. Secondly, the stone covering the tomb, as before mentioned, weighed two tons. Like, really, the disciples sneak up all ninja style and then are able to roll a two-ton rock in a rock trough 
without making enough noise for anyone to wake up. Again, it's just silly. Finally, and this will explain the direction of John's narrative in chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus was in actuality some grand hoax designed by the disciples. It makes no sense then why your first eyewitnesses would be women, and specifically Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by seven demons. She was kind of crazy. Not the right person to have as your eyewitness to the biggest event in history. Women in this culture, weren't, their testimony wasn't admissible in the court of law. Like you couldn't even testify. Like instead, if this was a hoax, the disciples would have absolutely made sure, just for the credibility of their own story, that men would have made the discovery. But that's not how it rolls. Ben Witherington he writes, given the patriarchal world of the early Christians, it is not believable that a missionary-minded group would make up such a story. It is not believable that early Christians made up stories about women, and particularly Mary Magdalene, as the foremost validating witness of the resurrection Lord, the risen Lord. This is not credible, especially because the gospel writers, like other early Christians, were hoping for more converts. The intention of the gospel writers... And the larger point behind the details that we've examined, the details they've provided, is that the only logical outcome for what ends up happening is as follows. The body of Jesus was missing because Jesus rose from the dead. There's not a more logical outcome than that. The death of Jesus had been certified the location of the tomb he had been laid in was not in question. The ability of the disciples to steal the Bible, not conceivable. And while no one was getting into that tomb, no one could keep Jesus from getting out. In closing, there are three thoughts that I want to leave you with this morning. I, I know that this morning's Bible study was largely academic, a little bit of apologetics mixed in, but I want to leave you with three points of application. Again, the context of, of the fact that we don't talk a lot about this, this period of time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We go from one to the other, but I want to just, this week for me, I just sat there and marinated in it, and, and there's three thoughts I want to leave you with. First, is not only the perceived hopelessness of this particular day. Think about that for a moment. But I also want you to consider how untethered from reality such a perspective actually was. You know, from the larger flow, the, the, the big narrative of Scripture. Like imagine you're just reading through from Genesis through the Old Testament. You get to the gospel accounts, and then you get to the crucifixion. Like if you get to that point, this flow of Scripture, what occurs on Passover would have been completely unthinkable. It would have shocked you. If you're reading, you might have closed the book. I'm done with that. That's a tragedy. Didn't see it coming. And since Genesis 3, God had promised humanity, and specifically the Jewish people, that he was going to send to earth a Savior. And this Savior would atone for sin, would crush Satan, would restore the eternal life we had forfeited so long ago. And yet... As the sun set on this Passover, with a lifeless Jesus laying in a garden tomb, 
with a stone being rolled across the entrance, resting into place. At that point, for anyone there, anyone in the know, it all seemed like an awful joke. At the close of this day, man was convinced, every man convinced, that sin had killed the Savior. Satan had buried him. And the pangs of death had finally snuffed out our only chance for life once and for all. The tomb with Jesus laying there, one would conclude hell had won. Evil had ruled the day. God was dead. Man's last hope had ended in total failure. Redemption, the story you'd been reading about, had, had come short. The grand plan of God appeared to have been thwarted at last. <laughs> May I ask, have you ever found yourself in such a dark and depressing place? A similar place? A place where things had taken such an unexpected turn for the worse? that you find yourself, you don't want to admit it, but the truth is you're questioning. You're questioning whether or not God's promises are any good at all. This isn't what you expected. This wasn't what you had planned for. As a matter of fact, you might in your own desperation, God must be dead. Hope has been crushed. God's plan made to no avail. In a sense, maybe you feel as though your life has been laid to rest in a tomb. You know, on this day, the human perspective was limited by the tragedy it had just witnessed at the crucifixion. As the day transitioned to darkness, there was not a single soul alive who expected or anticipated resurrection. Not a single person on planet earth, had any hope at all that God was still at work and his promises sure. Jesus had experienced the fate that all man faced. In fact, the women that come to the tomb three days later, they come fully expecting what? They're seeking a dead Jesus. They come to finish the burial process. They're not expecting resurrection. It's a truth that our perspective on such things is often held captive by the moment in which that perspective occurs. Rarely are we privy to the complete plan. Or if we were, our perspective would be, would be shaped by the larger story. If mankind had believed Jesus' word for three times, he had said, guys, we're going to Jerusalem don't worry, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to hand me over to the Romans. I'm going to be crucified. I know that sounds terrible. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. You got it? Three times. If anyone had believed Jesus' word, their outlook would have been much different. Oh, yeah, I know he's dead. I know we put him in the tomb. Don't you worry about the spices, man. This is three days. He won't stink that bad. And he'll come to life. But no one had that perspective. They were all held captive by the moment of the crucifixion. And if any of this resonates with you, 
I pray that you are encouraged by the simple reality that as with this Passover story, no matter how dark it may appear, how hopeless you may feel, God's plan for your life is not yet complete. It looks like it's over, but it's not. However hopeless your circumstances may be in this moment, please realize your perspective is not complete. God's apparent inactivity was not evidence at all that he wasn't still working. Like, will you believe that God still has a plan and a purpose? That while he may seem dead and distant, he works all things for the good? I beg you, if you're in this place, to hold hope, hold fast to hope in the midst of your despair. Believe God will do the improbable even though you're facing the impossible. He's able. (laughs) The darkest day this world had ever seen was about to give way unexpectedly to the most incredible display of resurrection power the world had ever seen. That's what your future may hold. His light overcoming your darkness. Second thing I want you to consider is really a powerful image that following Jesus' declaration, it is finished, Jesus then rested in a garden tomb for two Sabbaths before rising from the dead. You know, in the context of Genesis chapter 2, when God rested on that first seventh day, we learn that the whole point of man's Sabbath was to A, remind him that it had only been through God's work that we were originally afforded a relationship with him at all on the seventh day. And two, that because our actions now ruin that relationship, it could only be through his work that our relationship with him could be restored. The Sabbath day don't work was to let you know your works don't matter. That was the whole point. Now what's interesting is this seventh day, God's Sabbath, his rest, it's only occurred twice in human history. Since Eden. Yes, God rested the original seventh day. But he ended his rest on the eighth day to do what? He busied himself with the work of redemption. The redemption of our sin. God could no longer rest. He got busy working. How interesting. That while the religious world, at the close of Thursday and the beginning of Friday, was ceasing from their work, In this attempt to earn God's favor, on these two Sabbaths, this Friday and this Saturday, Jesus rested. He rested in a garden tomb. Jesus had completed his work. He said, it is finished. There's nothing more for me to do. I finished the work on Calvary. Now all man may be given God's favor and find rest in him. Never forget, rest is only found in a relationship with God. But a relationship with God is only made possible through the completed work of Jesus. So instead of trying to earn, achieve, or maintain God's favor, join Jesus and rest, knowing His work for you is finished. Finally, and we'll close with this, consider how just, in some ways poetic, It was that while the day had began with Jesus in the hands of a vengeful world, 
this day closes with his body in the hands of loving disciples. I'm struck by that, just that picture. Now, I'm not going out on a limb when I say that Joseph and Nicodemus were likely forever changed through that personal interaction they had with the body and the blood of Jesus, removing him from the cross, taking him to the tomb, washing him. As these men took to this this tender task, preparing his body for burial, that moment, it had to have been heavy. I mean, imagine you putting your fingers into the contusions of his hands and feet, cleaning the deep wound in his side, the very sight of his lacerated back. Aside from this, I imagine as these two men roll the stone across the entryway and look at each other, as they walk away, literally covered in the blood of Jesus, the moment also had to have been heavy. Like, what a reminder as to the brutal effects of sin. This is what sin wrought. But also, what a picture of what was really required for forgiveness that by his stripes we've been healed. His body, a physical manifestation that illustrated what the wrath of God was. For Joe and Nick, their interactions with Jesus' body and blood powerfully demonstrated the sacrifice that Jesus had willingly offered for them. It demonstrated the depths of his love. His love was on display. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I wonder what it had been like for those two men to come and see the empty tomb. (laughs) Uh, Well, we put him there. Those were the burial cloths. No body. As I've contemplated this week, these two men, as I've imagined the profound implications of the moment each of them had through this experience, I've come to the conclusion that you and I, friend, we should have a similar experience every single time we come to the Lord's table. Yes, we don't handle the actual body and blood of Jesus, but the bread and the wine, they serve as a reminder of those two things. You know, every time we come to the table, every time we handle the elements May we handle them as lovingly and as contemplatively as Joseph and Nicodemus handled the actual body of our crucified Savior. It's what they represent. May we contemplate the significance of His sacrifice as we handle the bread and consider the covering of His blood as we partake of the cup. Well, on that Passover morning, Jesus suffered indeed via the hands of vengeful people How glorious it is to think that beginning with a precedent set by Joseph and Nicodemus, every day that has followed, the body and blood of Jesus has forever remained in the hands of loving disciples. And so, Father, Lord, we just want to let that...